Hey, my friends, thank you so much for joining me for another episode of Real Live Talk. My name is Duke Lamastra. I'm your host. I'm so grateful that you're taking some time to check out this episode. I pray that the content blesses you, challenges you, or encourages you in some way. And if it does, if you'd consider subscribing, sharing, or leaving a review, those are all beautiful, free ways that you can support this channel. And it would really mean the world to me. So thank you so much in advance. Mostly, thank you for being here. And uh, let me tell you about my guest for today, Lee Martin McDonald. Wow. Uh, Lee is a leading New Testament scholar and foremost expert on the process of the formation of the biblical canon. He holds a Master's of Theology from Harvard, as well as a PhD in New Testament Studies from Edinburgh. He's the President Emeritus, as well as a Professor of New Testament Studies at Acadia Divinity School in Nova Scotia, Canada. He's also authored slash co-authored, I think the count is 35 books, and then 160 plus articles the, the man writes a lot, and uh, he's written extensively on the subject of the formation of the biblical canon. If you don't know what I'm referring to when I say the word canon, we're going to get into this, and I asked Lee to even define uh, canon and canonization, and uh, we're going to start at a very, very simple grassroots level and kind of build things from there. This conversation is really kind of an overview because we didn't have nearly enough time to really do justice to this conversation. Again, Lee's written 35 books. Some of these books are um, a 1,000 pages <laughs> or more uh, on this subject of biblical canonization. And uh, yeah, so he's got a ton of expertise, a ton of experience. He's studied this for many, many years, and uh, he shares his perspective, and uh, I thought it was really, really helpful let me just say that there may be, and I would venture to even say probably be some things in this conversation that you disagree with, and that's completely okay. I'm going to be honest with you. There are some things that we talked about here where, unlike Lee, I do not consider myself to be a biblical scholar or a theologian. I consider myself to be a student of the Word of God, of the Bible. Uh, but there's some things here that I've got to do some deeper thinking on and and uh, develop my own thoughts and opinions on in a little bit of a deeper way. But uh, really, ultimately, at the end of the day, uh, the way that Lee explained things, I mean, Lee really does take a lot of criticism for some of his stances on the Bible. But I, in my humble opinion, I think that he's really, really fair in his approach to the study of Scripture. He affirms the authority of Scripture, as do I. I'm so grateful to Lee for his time and for sharing his insights and wisdom and uh, his knowledge with us. So anyway, I'm not going to give too much more away here. But again, I appreciate you guys so much for taking the time to be here. And uh, yeah, let's go ahead and jump into this conversation. And I really hope you enjoy it with Lee Martin McDonald. Lee, I appreciate you, sir. Thank you for your time and for joining me this evening. I'm excited to kind of pick your brain a little bit and really just hear your perspective on some of these things specifically relating to the formation of the of the biblical canon. So thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Nice to be with you. Yeah. And I'm kind of curious to know, well, actually, before we jump into anything, I know there are so many uh, books that you've written that I that I could mention. I'm just curious for somebody who is a kind of brand new to this subject of the formation of the canon and understanding how we came to have the Bible that we have today, uh, particularly even the New Testament that we have today. Uh, what's one of the books that you've written or that you've been a part of that you would personally recommend to somebody to kind of get an overview and just to get a little bit more understanding of this area? 
Well, I have a smaller volume that I wrote for the church uh, a number of years ago. Uh, I was a visiting professor at Princeton, and and one of the professors said, "When are you ever going to write something for the church?" And I said, "You're right." And this was this is <laughs> the formation. It's it's that thin. So if you get much more than 150 or 200 pages for lay people, they get lost. And the largest, it's a two volume work. And uh, uh, that's 1,030 pages and uh, guaranteed to put you to sleep within three paragraphs. Anyway, anyway uh, that's, that's just some of the stuff that's there. Um, it's been 35 books and about 160 articles on this subject. And, uh, and I've gone, done some other stuff and other biblical subjects as well. Anyway. That's incredible. I'm, I'm glad you I'm glad you brought that up because I was I, I was looking at some of your of your writings and I was like, yeah, some of these are 500 pages, a thousand pages. Yeah. And uh, that's pretty fantastic. So um, give me the name that just the title of the one that you recommended one more time. Oh, um, Formation of the Bible. Formation the of the Sub- Bible. Perfect. Formation of the Bible. The story of the church's canon. OK, perfect. And people can find that on Amazon. Yeah, I would imagine. And. Yep. Okay, very good. I'm just kind of curious, and you were sharing this with me a little bit off camera just a, just a moment ago, but I'm curious if, if just to kind of know a little bit more about you in terms of how you got into this, and if you could kind of just give the listeners just a little bit of a snapshot of how you got involved into all this in the first place. Well, over the years after I finished seminary, uh, I remembered what uh, we read, normally about four or five pages on the whole subject of the Old Testament uh, canon and the New Testament canon, about the same. And that was for, uh, written by professors who had never really studied the question and it didn't seem to answer a lot of questions for me. And when I was a pastor, I remember I've been going back and forth between the pastorate and uh, the church, and I love the pastorate more, and I love the, chur- uh, the church, the academy. Uh, At any rate, I had a young man that came home from uh, school, a secular school, and he took a course on religion and the Bible. And a Mm. professor shared with them that there were many books that didn't get into the Bible. So he came to my Wednesday night Bible study and he said, can I ask you a question about the Bible? I said, sure. He said, why did these books get in? And uh, there's a whole bunch of others that didn't. I heard there was over a hundred that didn't make it. I said, you're right. There were more than a hundred that didn't make it. And as I was trying to explain to him how we got our Bible, I kept thinking of exceptions to everything I was telling him. And um, so I said, let me get back to you next week. I'll do some homework this week. Well, that was 40 years ago. And, um, and I went on and did a degree at Harvard in that very area subsequent uh, to that and uh, found all kinds of areas that most people didn't know much about. And most of the books, uh, there were very few books written on the subject until about 40 or 50 years ago. But then it became uh, not too many people were uh, doing anything with it. And then within a six-month period, three professors uh, I was one wrote a, a book on how we got our Bible. And uh, so I've stayed with that. And uh, my interest uh, has grown. Uh, the first book that I wrote was of uh, a thesis that was published. And then 
Subsequently, it expanded from about 200 pages to about 350 and then 550 and then 650 and 1,000 and so on. And uh, so I've stayed with it uh, just to try to make sure that I'm getting it right. And some folks have said, are you ever going to get it right? I said, I hope so. Uh, just about every time you publish anything, there's always somebody that uh, finds an exception or you didn't interpret that text uh, correctly. But I got into it, and it's a very important subject now. And and uh, those three professors, Bruce Metzger from uh, Princeton and F.F. Bruce and I, mine was the smallest of the works initially, but mine is now much larger. And uh, uh, they were very, very helpful. I uh, had regular communication with Bruce Metzger at Princeton, and he was very helpful to me. So. Uh, it's a subject now that a number of books and articles, there's hundreds of articles that have been published uh, since those times and several books as well. Mm. Yeah. And so, Lee, just to make sure that everybody's kind of on the same page, let me start in a very, very basic place. And could you just give kind of your your definition of what what is canon? What does that mean? And canonization? Yeah. Uh, the word canon actually was uh, a term, cana, that referred to a reed that grew on the Nile River. And it uh, mm. once it dried up, they used it for measuring. And it was generally uh, from a tip of the finger to the elbow. And uh, we still use something close to a three-foot uh, ruler and then a one-foot ruler. Uh, these days, the, the term ruler is also canon, and uh, it's a form of it. Uh, cannon was a measuring rod that was used to build buildings, and it was also uh, the term was used in philosophy and and uh, just about everything you could imagine. There were cannons in the ancient world, and cannons of the readers that were the best. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, of authors who were the best uh, authors, and uh, Egypt had a bunch of the. There was a specific number of uh, of uh, authors that were in those categories, uh, epic uh, uh, writings, epic poetry, and so on. Uh, Homer was always at the top of the list, but uh, the church began to use about the fourth century the term canon for those writings that would be acceptable to be read in churches. And that's what the term canon had to do, uh, do with. And the biblical canon is simply the writings that now comprise our Bible. Uh, when you say, I have a Bible, you have a biblical canon. Uh, and uh, it's a collection of, uh, in the Protestant Bible, the 39 books of the Old Testament and the 27 of the New. The Catholics have a larger collection in their uh, scriptures, and the Orthodox uh, larger, and the largest are the Ethiopians. But that's the the idea, uh, Athanasius in the fourth century, possibly Origen in the third century, church, two church fathers well-known, uh, they started using the term canon uh, to uh, speak about a collection of writings that uh, were authoritative and informed the faith of the early church. So just as we kind of jump into some maybe maybe some specifics, um, can you kind of just share a little bit on the basics of how the canon was formed um, in terms of, 
you know, how did the early church leaders begin to categorize things into what we would know today at well, what we would call today as our Bible, but how did they start to piece things together and recognize um, which writings and which which works were considered to be scripture and all of that. I know that's like a really probably broad and loaded question, but maybe we can get into some of the basics of how the canonization process began to take place and um, what the, yeah, just kind of what that process looked like at the beginning. Well, uh, you started off with uh, the whole notion of a uh, canon, uh, and that really begins with the Jewish people. The earliest Christians were Jews. And uh, what was characteristically true in Judaism in the first century was also true in early Christianity, by and large. The Jews uh, started their, the whole notion of scripture for them started with the story. There were three stories, primary, and you find them in the Old Testament. And one was the exodus uh, of the Jews from Egypt. And the second is the wilderness wanderings. And the third is their taking back the land of Canaan that God had given to them. Those three emphases are emphasized by the, the prophets in uh, the ancient world before there was a Pentateuch like what we have today. Uh, the story preceded them and even preceded Moses. I mean, the book of Genesis precedes Moses, of course, but uh, those stories were used to tell the, the children of Israel when they would start worshiping other gods or departing from the God of uh, who brought them out of Egypt and who kept them safe in the wilderness wanderings and brought them into the land of Canaan. Amos chapter two, I think it's about verse 10 and 12, 10 to 12, there's 85 references to the those three major events. And uh, eventually Genesis and the 10 commandments and the other commandments were added to it. But having said that, when the children of Israel uh, disregarded the laws of God and they were, their nation was uh, captured and destroyed in 586 BC, they went into Babylon and they came back. And the only thing they had that they could take to Babylon was scripture. Their temple was destroyed. Their kings had been uh, deposed. Their people had been killed. What they had was this story. And that story began to grow, and it included, first of all, um, uh, Josiah is mentioned in 2 Kings 22, 23, as the one who uh, the high priest Hilkiah found the book of the law in the, um, uh, in the temple. They were cleaning up the temple and fixing it up, yeah. and they found it, and it cre created a renewal of faith in the, in the nation. And then they shortly got after, uh, got away from that after uh, Josiah was killed in battle. After the Babylonian captivity, the Jews come back, Ezra and Nehemiah, they establish uh, the country again, and they rebuild the walls, they rebuild the temple. And what kept them together was they read the scriptures, Nehemiah chapter 8, verses 1 to 8. It's That was the notion of reading of scripture and which books were was uh, a question they didn't ask for a while, but it was those primary stories that the prophets of the Old Testament always interpreted for the people saying, you screwed up, you didn't follow what God told you to do, and here's the law that you ignore. 
But for much of the Old Testament, you don't see any references to the law after the book of, uh, after the Pentateuch. There's only one re uh, reference to it in 1 Kings, and then 2 Kings that was written after the defeat of uh, the, the fall of Israel, and they come back. It's at that time, at about 500 to five, uh, 450 BC, you start seeing references not only to the books of the Pentateuch, but also some of the prophets. Uh, uh, Ezra chapter five, verse one speaks of uh, Haggai and Malachi and then uh, Jeremiah in the opening chapter. The New Testament is a, a, a different story, but that collection of writings that form the faith of the children of Israel really begins in seriousness about 500 BC. Several of the books were written earlier. I mean, Amos was written uh, much earlier, 800 BC probably, and some of the Psalms were written earlier and so on. But uh, they didn't have much of an impact upon the people until after the fall of the and the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the law becomes mm -hmm. a major part of the Jewish people. And as Christians, uh, when Jesus came, and I often say Jesus was the primary canon of the early church. He was the rule. If Jesus said it, that settles it, not a problem. But they were Jewish people, and the scriptures that they cited are the same ones that their fellow Jews cited uh, when teaching the law and uh, how to live uh, for God and so on. So, But the writings of the New Testament didn't, uh, the ones that we have, I think some of them started in the time of Jesus. And uh, one uh, professor uh, uh, who recently passed away, uh, James Dunn, uh, Jimmy Dunn, um, said some of the writings that are found in the Gospels were probably written before the death of Jesus. And there's a thing called Q, which is the uh, things that Matthew and Luke have in common that are not found in Mark uh, or in John. And uh, some of those, might, because there's no death or resurrection story, they might well have been written ahead of time uh, before Jesus died. And then afterwards, they're put forward in gospels that we have. Anyway, the gospels that we have, probably the first is Mark, and then uh, probably Luke, and then Matthew, and then in John in that chronological order. But uh, those writings told the story of Jesus. He was the canon of the church, the king of the church, the Lord of the church. And so uh, when you're looking at the Gospels, uh, they're all about Jesus and his life, his teachings, his activities, his fate and his resurrection. And those were central themes that became a part of early Christianity. Uh, but the early Christians uh, had scriptures and uh, scripture was a part, and you find uh, citations of the Old Testament throughout the New Testament, and uh, that was very important. But the most important was what Jesus had to say. And uh, Paul uses that in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, when he's talking to the, uh, the people, the widows, and, uh, and what about those that have, uh, are married to an unbeliever and so on. They cite the words of Jesus. They were like scripture from the very beginning. So as those writings begin to emerge, those that best reflected the core teachings of the early church are the ones that were eventually put into the biblical canon. And that took several centuries. It didn't happen overnight. 
Uh, we'd like to think uh, when Paul finished writing Romans, uh, he said uh, Tertius, who actually did the editing for him and uh, wrote the final portion of it, Romans chapter 16, verse 22. Uh, I used to put that on a test to say, who wrote the book of Romans? And they'd say, Paul. And I said, oh, no, it's Tertius. Anyway, but he took Paul's writings. And then Paul said when he finished, Tertius, I want you to add this to my biblical canon books uh, that I'm writing right now. And I've got several others that I've written. That's nonsense. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, no one was thinking about a biblical canon in the first century or even in the second century. And they begin to think about these books, but not those. There were a lot of books written, some in the names of apostles that uh, also had heresy in them. There's some 31 gospels that never made it into our New Testament. And uh, those uh, gospels were uh, refused or rejected because they had uh, heresy, what was believed to be heresy in them. And uh, there's a number of books of Acts that were written, but we only have one book of Acts in the New Testament. After several centuries of evaluating the, li the literature and comparing it with the books that are no longer a part of our Bible, the church fathers began to say, these books can be read in the churches, uh, but not those off over there. And that's largely in the fourth and fifth centuries AD. The earliest church didn't have a Bible. They had some scriptures, but not a complete set. And we have no examples of early churches that had more than a handful of manuscripts. And uh, the first uh, uh, 400 years only uh, of surviving manuscripts, uh, only about uh, 14 out of 230 or, or 260 have more than two copies, uh, two books in them. So it's very limited. Uh, it begins by the fourth century, the capacity for the codex or the book that was formed to uh, hold more books was the first time we could put all of the books in and Codex Sinaiticus and Codex Vaticanus, two well-known manuscripts uh, are about uh, between uh, 1400 to 1600 pages. And then you start to see for the first time, all of the books that some churches uh, accepted. But uh, what uh, uh, there was seldom any agreement, there never has been agreement, full agreement on the Old Testament in churches, Orthodox, Catholic, or Protestant. Uh, but all of the churches now accept all of the books of the New Testament. Uh, the book of Revelation is the only one that claims to be a a complete revelation of God in the New Testament, and it was the hardest one to be accepted. And uh, to this day, the Orthodox Christians welcome it in their Bible, but they never read it in their church, And uh, which is an interesting uh, development. And uh, I read an article not too long ago about a professor saying, how can we call it our scripture and we never read it in church, uh, in the Orthodox tradition? Anyway, that's kind of an overview <clears throat> Uh, the church took centuries to come up with a final version of the Bible that they all agreed to. Uh, interestingly, in the Armenian church in the 1800s, they stopped using uh, Third Corinthians. The Catholics used it for almost a thousand years. Third Corinthians is just simply a compilation of some of Paul's writings, but Paul didn't put that together, didn't write it. And uh, uh, in an Armenian church that I uh, 
remembered quite well. I was married there, but the pastor would quote from Third uh, Corinthians in his sermons from time to time, and then the repose of the blessed disciples. So uh, the, there were variations continuing on throughout church history, and the only local uh, church councils uh, ever spoke about which books could be read in their churches. Ecumenical councils for all of the churches of the seven ecumenical councils, none of them say anything about which books to read in the Bible. Uh, or which books are comprised by the Bible. So it's a complex subject, but it uh, <clears throat> uh, the early church was using the writings before they were called scripture. And then when they were called scripture, they were called scripture and used before they were put into a fixed collection. And there were some books that are not in our Bible that were cited for centuries as scripture, and then they fell off the edge of the cliff. So like First Enoch. It's cited as scripture in Jude 14, but uh, by the third century, all of a sudden, it just goes over the cliff and people said, Enoch didn't write that, the seventh from Adam, and therefore it's false, and therefore they, they didn't accept it. But the Ethiopian Christians to this day included in their Bibles. Mm. Anyway. Yeah, no, there, there's, so much, there's so much there. And as you said, this is a, a very expansive uh, topic, and I'm sure we could probably talk here all day. But, you know, it's really, really fascinating to me what you're saying there, particularly about the early church. You're talking about the first sec and second century church and what they had access to. So, you know, we have we have Paul in particular writing letters to some of the churches of that day. So writing letters to the Corinthian church and to the Ephesian church and the Galatians. And, and we have different things like that going on now. Okay. A couple of questions that are, that are, that I'm thinking about right now, I'm going to ask a couple of things at the same time. And then, um, you know, we, you can uh, kind of do with that, <laughs> whatever you think is going to be best. But first of all, did, did Paul and the other writers who were writing the new Testament did they have any kind of, in your opinion, uh, based on what you've, you know, what you've studied and the way that you've thought through this, did they have understanding at the time that they were writing scripture or were they basically writing just, you know, so when Paul writes a letter to the Corinthian church, for example, he's obviously thinking about the Corinthian church and he's talking about specific issues and he's citing specific, even cultural things that are going on in the church of that day. Do you think there was this knowing that this was something that was going to become scripture or were they just kind of writing things that were going to be helpful for the church of that day? Uh, and then my, my other sort of broader question I think is what did they have access to? So for example, we see in, in second Timothy chapter three, where Paul is writing to Timothy and he mentions scripture. He says all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. What is he talking about there? Is he talking primarily about the Old Testament scriptures? Yeah, let me start with your second question. Yes, Paul was speaking of in the second Timothy three sixteen and 17, all scriptures given by inspiration of God is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction, and righteousness. He was speaking of the Old Testament scriptures. They didn't call them Old Testament scriptures at that time. They were just the, the church's scriptures. And so 
many people have said uh, what Paul said about the Old Testament is also true of the New. Well, that's a move that we make, but Paul didn't because the New hadn't even been written uh, altogether by that, by that time. So <clears throat> uh, you also raised the, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, what did the early church have right from the get-go? There was no Bible as such, and they had a limited collections of writings. We don't know of any church that had all of the books of the Old Testament with them. And the manuscripts are just varied. They don't contain all of the Old Testament books for quite some time. But what they had was the preaching and the teaching of the apostles, Acts 2.42. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking of bread, and to prayer. And uh, that was very important. And then they had uh, uh, statements of faith that uh, they would share and they would travel uh, on a regular basis to a number of churches. They're called creeds. The oldest creed in the New Testament is Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. There were no uh, persons who could come into a church after they had already read that uh, text. That was a, that was a creed. Uh, and say, well, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. Well, when that was said, Paul got after their hide, 1 Corinthians 15. He said, if Christ is not risen, you're yet in your sins. Your faith is vain. You're most to be pitied. Uh, there were several things in there. Uh, several creeds are found in the New Testament, and they summarize the core essence of early Christianity. And the creeds begin to expand more. You don't have the virgin birth in the first century creeds, but by the second century, you do. And uh, uh, God is the author of uh, creation. God created the heavens and the earth. And that's found in uh, the New Testament, uh, John 1, 1 to 3, and uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 8, 16, 8, 13. Uh, there are several passages like that. Uh, but they weren't a part of a creedal formulation until the second century when there were folks in the church that said uh, the Old Testament God was evil and uh, he created the heavens and the earth, but the God of Jesus is a God of love. And so uh, the God of Jesus did not create the heavens and the earth and all of that matter stuff was evil. Uh, so they put in all of the creeds by the second century uh, all of them say that God is uh, the father and maker of heaven and earth. Uh, anyhow, those are the kinds of things that happen. And the creeds grew. But here's another area. All of the baptisms, all of the communions had statements that were made as they prepared those. And you see that in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians 11, 25, uh, 23 to 25. Uh, you probably read the same thing on a Sunday morning and or from the Gospels when you have communion in your church. Those affirmations were there before there was a Bible. And then at baptisms, uh, when a person is baptized, in my church, they confess that Jesus is the Christ who died on a cross for our sins, who uh, was buried and raised again, and he's the Lord of the church, and we're going to follow him. Uh, churches vary in what they say, but those kinds of things were circulating. And here's something that you seldom hear in churches. The hymns of the early church also told the story of the Christian gospel. 
And that's still true to this day. Open up a hymn book, and they're all telling the story of God's activity. So those things were present before there was a Bible. And those things were what led the churches to say these core beliefs are central to us, and the writings that don't affirm those will be rejected. Does that make sense? Uh, it makes a lot of sense. And yeah, I'm just I'm just thinking, it seems to me the way that you're describing this, it's kind of helping to paint a picture in my mind. And this is something that I've thought about before, I guess, but it's helping things to come together. So you said that the early church existed, and, and of course, we know this to be true, but the early church existed uh, really before they had a Bible. And so we have the early church, you know, as early as Acts chapter two, as you mentioned, and they're, um, they're fellowshipping together, they're meeting from house to house, and they are continuing in the apostles teachings. And, and of course, everything is, is focused on, on Jesus, and it's, and they, you know, retelling the gospel and, and all of that. And so it's like this, the early church really existed in this very communal way where, you know, now I, I don't even, I don't even know. I'm sure you've got me beat, but I've got so many Bibles <laughs> personally in my, in my house. I've got, you know, we've probably got dozens of Bibles um, just, just in our, in our house here, different versions and different translations and transliterations and all kinds of things. And, and I feel like so often we probably take for granted the fact that we have the word of God so accessible to us. But back then in this early church, before they had something that they could take home with them, what did they do? They got together. They met in, in churches, synagogues, from house to house, whatever they did. But they, they got together and they were hearing the teachings of Jesus, right? This is essentially what, what you're saying. And so they were, they were basically... Yeah, sure. The teachings of Jesus and about Jesus mm -hmm. and the fate of Jesus, his death and resurrection. That was a part of the apostolic teaching, and it's at the core of early Christianity. But um, you had another question a bit ago, and I wanted to get to it. It was the third question, but you ask it first. Were they? <laughs> let, me, let me just say I can do it simply, and I'll, I'll read a verse from Paul that will clarify it. Did Paul think everything he was writing was sacred scripture or would become such? My answer is no. And the evidence for it is in Paul himself. Uh, he makes a statement in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 11. Uh, he said, what I am saying in regard to this boastful confidence, I'm saying not with the Lord's authority. The Greek word is kata. Uh, uh, kurios, uh, according to the Lord, but as a fool, and the words as a fool is simply karta, uh, karta uh, sarka, kata sarka, according to the flesh. Would a person writing scripture saying what I'm writing is according to the flesh? That doesn't make any sense to me. And he calls himself a fool several times in chapters 11 and 12. And then he says what a true person is. The revelation that Paul had that he received on the Damascus road from, from the risen Christ is what he, he said was the revelation of God. He's writing to churches to correct errors that they're having and to encourage them in their, their faith. And the writers of the New Testament, you would think if, if 
they all believed that they were writing scripture. Somebody would have said it at one time or another, but which text in the New Testament says I'm writing scripture or anything like it? None of them. That was something that was understood the more it was read in the churches and it became a part of the life of the churches that they began to treat it like scripture and it's always treated like scripture before it's called scripture. And then it's called, once it's called scripture, then you have collections of scriptures that begin to emerge. I, I'm trying to answer your, your question there. And Paul, uh, he got very upset in uh, the book of Galatians with those who were trying to uh, get these new Gentile Christians circumcised. And he says, I wish those who unsettle you would castrate themselves. That doesn't sound like I'm consciously aware of writing scripture. And, uh, and uh, you find in 1 Corinthians 1 where uh, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize any of you except uh, the household. of." Uh, and, and then later on, he says, oh, and somebody else. Uh, go up to verse 16. So mm. it doesn't sound like he's taking the time to say, I'm writing scripture. He's dealing with critical issues that need to be addressed. And he's doing the very best that he can. He believes he has the spirit, 1 Corinthians 7, verse 40. But he doesn't say, I'm writing scripture. Mm. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's that makes that argument uh, that all of the New Testament writers uh, and they'll pull out a verse or two here and there. And I dealt with that in some publications. Uh, they misunderstand the scripture text that they're citing. And then they say, if one writer said it, then all of the writers of the New Testament felt the same way. And they felt they were writing scripture. That's nonsense. It, it, it doesn't make any sense. So I'm sorry. Go ahead now. If I've got no, no. used, I wanted yeah. to get to that question because it's a popular question now. And there's a few people uh, who are saying uh, that the writers of the New Testament were consciously aware of writing scripture. I say no. But as soon as the gospels were written, they began to function like that in the churches that had them. And all churches didn't have all four gospels. In fact, seldom did you have one church that had four gospels until the end of the second century AD. And then all of a sudden, maybe they only had the gospel of John or the gospel of Mark. And when they finally got Matthew, they said, what? Are you kidding me? A virgin birth? Oh, you know. <laughs> so we often read the fourth gospel uh, canonically. It's the fourth gospel. And we assume that John knew everything in the first three gospels. Only 8% of John's gospel is parallel to what's in the, the first three gospels. So those are the kinds of things. I raise those kinds of questions from time to time. The early churches didn't have all of the scriptures together like you and I have. And it was rare. And just to get one copy of all of the scriptures, and that's the fourth century, just the animals, hundreds of animals to make one copy. And then two and a half years, two years and three months for the average scribe to make a professional scribe to make a copy. And uh, I have a facsimile of that. What would that cost? 300 animals? the salary for uh, then the preparation of the uh, the skins and then the salary for a person well above well-educated person today would make uh, a lot of money in two years and three months. Uh, so if a church actually had a copy of the scriptures, it was a wealthy church 
And wow. most early manuscripts were not that well done and lots of mistakes are in them because they had uh, literate amateurs, that's Bruce Metzger's reference uh, to them, literate amateurs making them. Some were better than others. Some were very good. P75, papyrus number 75 is very well done, and uh, but some are not. And uh, it took, by the fourth century, a lot of the mistakes and errors in the manuscripts were corrected, and you start seeing a lot more consistency in the manuscripts uh, around that time when the church could hire professional people and make pro uh, large professional 1,600-page uh, uh, copies of the Church of Scriptures. Wow. You know, as you're, as you're talking, you were sharing some of those examples of Paul in his writings. And another one that came to mind was Galatians 1.8, where Paul says, you know, even if I come to you preaching a different gospel than the one that you've heard from us before, let, let him be accursed. You know, if, if I or an angel come, let him be accursed. That's another one of those doesn't really sound like something that somebody would say if they were very, very conscious of the fact that I am God's mouthpiece right now and everything that's coming out of my, you know, <laughs> that's that, that I'm that I'm putting forth is uh, is 100 percent, you know, uh, and, and all this. And um, it doesn't bother me at all. Personally, I think that I love the fact that we see the humanity of the of the writers. And, and I think it's really interesting when we look at the Gospels and we see Peter for example, in the Gospels. And we see, you know, he wasn't the one writing Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but he's obviously all throughout those Gospels. And we see his personality. We see his flaws. We see his character flaws. We see him putting his foot in his mouth over and over again. We see him rebuking Jesus. And we see him, you know, we see him doing all of these things. We see him cussing, denying Jesus three times, turning his back. We see all these things. And then we, and then we see him, uh, you know, later on writing, um, yep. the, you know, for, first Peter, second Peter, and we, we see that and we see the same thing with Paul, even to a greater extent, because when we first find Paul, he's killing Christians or delivering up Christians to be, uh, killed and he's persecuting the church. And then we see him writing the, uh, majority really of the new Testament books. And, you know, we see all these things and, and I, I think I would know how you would respond to this, but I know that there are those out there who would say that when the, whether we're talking about Paul, Matthew, James, whoever we're talking about, when they were writing scripture, that God was working through them in such a way that their infallibility as human basically went out the window and all of that. I, I wouldn't, be in agreement with that and i think i know how you would answer that question but what how do you feel about about the humanity of the people that did yeah. ultimately write the scriptures that we have today we we have all kinds of examples in the new testament of where uh some things don't cohere uh, the four gospels if you read all four gospels in a short period of time you find differences in them dealing with the same events how many angels were at the tomb one or two uh Matthew and Mark versus Luke and John. Uh, where were the angels, inside or outside? What was the message of the angels? Uh, what time did the women come to the tomb? When the sun was up or when it was still dark? Uh, Mark versus John. I mean, you find a number of things like that. We have a theology that's been taught to us post-biblical times that says uh, when uh, the 
people in the New Testament were very human, as you mentioned. Peter, Peter was always Peter, and he, even after the resurrection of Jesus, Paul had to get him in line because he was a hypocrite at, uh, in Galatians 2. Uh, he got up from the table sitting with Gentiles when some Jewish uh, Christians came from James. Um, yeah, and, and so Paul corrects him uh, and called him a phony. Anyway, <laughs> the point is, we breathe our theology back into the New Testament in an anachronistic way and saying, well, they were flawed all the time until they sat down and wrote. Show me a verse that shows that. Show me a verse that shows that very thing. You don't find one. So be careful that you have a theology that isn't biblical. And when I tell folks, uh, why do we speak about the humanity of Scripture and then deny it in principle? Uh, there's different vocabularies. There's better writings. When Paul wrote Galatians, he was mad because somebody had spied out his churches and were turning them towards circumcision and the keeping of the law. And he was mad. He has several unfinished sentences. And he's the one that says, I, those people that are coming after you to get circumcised, I hope they castrate themselves. I mean, he's mad. And uh, the same theology is found in the book of Romans and it's beautifully done. Uh, and it's more expanded uh, than in the six chapters of Galatians. You have the 15 plus the additional chapter at uh, 16 summarizing things. Uh, it's, uh, it's a powerful statement. Uh, why do we say that God can't use somebody who's flawed? Uh, I uh, used to counsel for uh, one of thousands of counselors at Billy Graham Crusades. I loved it. And I saw Billy Graham make mistakes, and he cited the wrong scripture a couple of times and even read it wrong. And there were 2,000 people who came forward and accepted Christ. Who says God can't use somebody that's got a, a mistake here and there? And if that were the case, then none of us would have a chance at doing the will of God nowadays and accomplishing the work of Christ in churches. So I, I say, let your common sense run uh, the way instead of always trying to impose some theology that was put together later, much later than the, than, uh, the early churches, uh, nobody in the early church ever denied that Peter screwed up now and then, and they've been allowed to be put in the scriptures. And yet, uh, here you have a person who made a lot of flaws and gaffes, and, uh, and yet God used him. And uh, uh, he was the primary spokesman on the day of Pentecost who preached the gospel, and 3,000 came to faith in Christ. Uh, yeah. I, I affirm the humanity of Scripture, hmm. and I twisted a verse around, uh, unlike the hypocrite who said, I thank God I'm not like other men. I thank God that I am. Uh, uh, if you ever want to find out how human I am, just ask my kids. <laughs> you know, they, they, they would tell Come you on. that. Not perfect. Uh, they thought I was perfect until they got to be about seven or eight or nine. And and boy, did that ever change dramatically. They said, boy, dad can really screw up now and then. And I had to apologize to my kids. But thankfully, that doesn't hinder me from preaching the gospel and doing what I, I think is right and caring for those that are in special need. Um, 
the same thing was true in early Christianity. You, you mentioned there about not, not, or about being careful to adopt things into theology that were added later on that, you know, to me, those, it's not even necessary to me. It doesn't even really, if we think about it the right way. And, and I really like the way that you're explaining this. I, I don't think it's necessary because when we, when we talk about some of those issues, some of those like small discrepancies and things like that, was there one angel or two, you know, think things like that, that happen where we see from one gospel to the next, from one account to the next, we see that there were some differences or the focus was on this in this story, but it was on something else in the other story. And we do see differences like that. I yeah. don't personally, I don't know how you feel about it. I, I don't personally look at those things as, oh, there it goes. The Bible's contradicting itself. I, I don't I don't look at it like that. And and um the reason is, and I know that ultimately this is this is just the thought based on what you just said. This is ultimately not a conversation about the accuracy of, of scripture. We're kind of more so talking about the formation of scripture and how we came to have the Bible that we have today. But I just um as you were as you were talking there, I'm just thinking, you know. I think that those small differences really do more to authenticate than anything, the, the accuracy of the Bible, because if we have, you know, I kind of look at it like two people go to a party and, you know, they have a different experience, even though they were at the same party and ultimately saw the same things unfolding, they were part of the same, you know, maybe some of the same conversations and things like that, but their focus might've been on different things. Maybe they didn't see everything that the other one saw. And so when they write about it, the baseline of the story is going to match up, but there's going to be some small differences in the way that they actually articulated the unfolding of those events that happened. And I think that if we were, you know, if we were to get together, let's say a bunch of Christ followers were to get together and say, okay, let's, uh, let's make something up here. Let's piece together a Bible, you know, they would, whatever they call it back then. But, you know, if we were to try to piece something together, that was not, accurate if we were trying to make something up and make things fit there's a lot of things that we have in our bible today that we would probably leave out like we probably would have left out a lot of things that are in there because you know there are some head scratchers in there but i think yeah. that as you said i mean i i affirm the authority of scripture but as you said i'm with you i also affirm the humanity of scripture and the fact that god worked through um, a bunch of men over a period of so many years, so many hundreds of years in so many different places, different experiences, backgrounds, some, you know, people that were extremely well educated and others that were not very well educated. And, you know, just using the humanity of people and the culture of the day, the personality of the writer, even um, to ultimately get us to the point where we are today with the scriptures that we have. And so to me, anyway, I just wanted to make that point. I don't personally, I, I'm curious about how you think about it. I don't think that those little discrepancies and things like that um, sure. diminish the authority of scripture in any way. I think that in some ways they even help to authenticate. But for some, it does diminish. And so they do everything they can to harmonize. How many times did the cock crow and that kind of a thing? Um, there's all kinds of people that spend more time than I'm willing to give to it to try to harmonize the Bible. And I said, uh, interestingly, all four Gospels acknowledge Jesus was a remarkable teacher, that he was arrested, he was crucified, and that he was buried, and that he was raised from the dead. Now, how many animals 
you see, all four Gospels have the triumphal entry of Jesus. It's a powerful message, and Scripture is cited. But Matthew has Jesus riding on two animals, and Mark, Luke, and John have on one the foal of a donkey. And Matthew says the foal and uh, or the donkey and the foal of the donkey, and Jesus was riding on them, plural. Um, and I still remember a professor, a friend of mine, that said, I can't believe that Jesus would have been riding on two animals at the same time. You got that wrong. Well, what took place is Matthew took the word and, which can also be translated even, and I'm using English here. It's the Hebrew. He was citing the Hebrew above is uh, uh, the connective. It can be even the full. And that means an animal that has never been ridden before is even harder to ride. And that was the point that was being made. But uh, not having Jesus ride on two animals at the same time. But uh, Mark, Luke, and John got the even out of the word chi, the Greek word chi, uh, even the full of an animal. And uh, Matthew didn't. Uh, the, but how does that diminish the overall message that Matthew is trying to read? The earliest church was not ignorant of those differences. Matthew was the most cited gospel uh, overwhelmingly. John second and uh, uh, Luke and Mark, uh, the least of the, uh, the four. But uh, they, they all knew that there was a powerful message about the one they called their Lord and their Savior and their Christ. And uh, I just say, hey, the scriptures have humanity in them, and we see that today. I've heard more sermons that were wacky poop, and, uh, and yet <laughs> they... The pastor had a good heart. He loved the Lord. He just got it all screwed up when he was trying to interpret a text. He didn't have much background or ability, but um, he could have spent a little bit more time on studying it. And and I I remember hearing a sermon where the the pastor and I went to him afterwards, and he kept using the word ass instead of donkey. Uh, mm. And, uh, and the whole focus of his sermon was how important the donkey was and that we should bring the donkey to Jesus. And so he kept saying, we should bring uh, the asses to Jesus. And I said, we've been doing that for a long time, I think. <laughs> anyway, uh, uh, why, don't we, why don't we do something? I applaud you, sir. Yeah. Anyway, those are the kinds of things. Uh, the scriptures, the early churches... Uh, Interestingly, for folks who focus on infallibility throughout, how come there's not an infallible translation or an infallible uh, interpretation of the scriptures? There's all kinds of them out there. And you and I are the only two that ever got it right. Uh, we, uh, may, and maybe I'm a little doubtful about you, but uh, no, the, the point is, is clear. Yeah. Uh, God allowed the humanity of Scripture to be a part of its formation and its interpretation. And yet, uh, pastors might get some things wrong. They seldom get wrong that Jesus died for our sins on a cross and that he was buried and raised. And the essence, the core essence of Christianity is that affirmation, Romans 10, 9. And uh, so I don't, I don't have too much problem on that. Do you know how many variants there are in the biblical manuscripts? 
that have survived. There's 5,750 uh, manuscripts or portions thereof that have survived of the New Testament. Are over 200,000 variants in those manuscripts. No two are exactly alike. Isn't that incredible? And the Greek Bible, which you may have learned Greek at, uh, in your Bible school, the Greek Bible you have is called an eclectic. It is selected from all of those manuscripts. There's not one manuscript that looks like the Greek Bible does today. And the same thing is true in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, there's over 900, uh, 9,000 Hebrew manuscripts that have survived, and there's over 900,000 variants in them. And the humanity of the copier, sometimes just a simple mistake was made, or a person, uh, it's getting time for lunch, and I'm tired, and uh, maybe need to run to the restroom, and they miss a line, and then it shows up, there's a gap in there, or they might have repeated it. You find that in... Uh, uh, some manuscripts of uh, Romans chapter 8, the first couple of verses are repeated. And you say, gee, they must have uh, really were tired at the end of the day or something of that nature. Or they hadn't wakened up and had their coffee uh, and oatmeal before they started making that copy. Uh, but the variants are there. Now, some are intentional changes. Those are fewer than the others. But uh, some scholars say that in the New Testament, uh, the more radical people say about 400,000 variants. That's more than the words of the New Testament, by the way, and so is 200,000 words, more than the words of the New Testament. But scholar, conservative scholars say at least 200 to 250,000 variants. Now, um, real quickly, when you say variants, are you talking about what would be considered a variant? Would it be anything? So there was a punctuation missing. That's a yeah. variant. Are we no, no. talking about the theologically, like theological differences, or are we just talking about the copying of the text, or what are we talking about? Thank you. The, the theological ones are the intentional ones, where a person wants to make a statement, 1 John 5, 7 and 8. That's an intentional insertion into the text. There's no Greek text that has uh, 1 John uh, 5, uh, verses 7 and 8, which says that there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Uh, that's not uh, original there, but it's a late 4th century Latin manuscript that first has it. Uh, that's an intentional insertion because the church was Trinitarian, and they, uh, a copier wanted to make sure that everybody got that. Uh, similar, John chapter 3, verse uh, 13, uh, Jesus said, No one has gone up to heaven, but he that has come down from heaven, even the Son of Man who is in heaven who is in heaven was to say Jesus was omnipresent. And that is in the King James Bible, but it's not in any other Bibles uh, because it was a later addition to the text. Those are insertions uh, into the text. There's several of them. Most of them are a person misses a line or misspells a word or whatever. But you see, that's a part of the humanity of scripture that uh, they're easily, most of them are easily correctable some of them we don't know the answer to, but no Greek Testament, uh, the, uh, the major ones that have been produced, uh, there's not one manuscript that looks exactly like them. So it, it, sometimes that blows people out of the water and they say, gee, are you? I said, sure. So which one's inspired? I think they all are.
Hmm. Uh, uh, and God used them. And uh, hmm. but those there, there were corruptions in them where somebody put lousy theology in it, and those were caught and they were discarded. But sometimes, you know, two animals versus one animal on the triumphal entry, uh, they didn't want to throw Matthew's gospel out because of that. Now, are you personally comfortable with the 66 books of the Bible that we have uh, today in our current, you know, if I'm, I, I guess what I'm talking about is the Protestant um, version of the Bible that we have today, uh, the 39 books of the Old Testament, the 27 books of the New Testament. Are you, um, are you comfortable uh, with our Bible exactly the way that it is? Or if it were up to you, are there any that you would <laughs> say, I'm not so sure about this one? Or is there any other maybe, you know, book that um, we would call extra biblical that you would that you think uh, meets the right amount of criteria and things like that, that it should actually be included? How, just where do you kind of personally stand on on that well, issue? You raise an excellent question. <clears throat> Uh, number one, I'm very comfortable with the Bible, but are there other books that are also orthodox in their teaching that didn't make it in? Of course. Uh, First Clement is a wonderful book, and it was treated like scripture for a while, and uh, Clement dates uh, possibly earlier than the Gospel of John and uh, in terms of time, and Clement of, uh, of uh, Rome writes to the Corinthian uh, Christians. Uh, Ignatius' writings were sometimes considered scripture by a few, but eventually people said no, and that's about 115 AD. It's very orthodox, and um, uh, there's a lot of good value in, uh, uh, say, the apocryphal writings, what Protestants call apocryphal, the Catholics call deuterocanonical uh, books. A Wisdom of Solomon is a very wonderful wisdom uh, literature. And Sirach is just wonderful reading, and the stories at Tobit and Judith are very interesting. I haven't added anything to my Bible, though I've been accused of that, when I say I don't mind if Christians today read some of the same literature that the early Christians read. And some of them included it in their scriptures, and some of them didn't, but many of them read it. Uh, the King James Bible included the apocryphal books in the first edition of the King James Bibles, in the 1611 edition, they put them right between the Old and New Testament, and uh, they they found some value. Luther wanted to get rid of all of them, but his people wouldn't let him, and so he put them in there, and he put them in in between the Old and New Testament. And then he he was the last one that said anything as strong as he didn't like Hebrews, and he didn't like Jude, and he didn't like James, and he didn't like uh, the book of Revelation, and he said they should all be thrown in the river Elba. And uh, wow. But his church didn't agree with that. But he put them at the tail end of his Bible uh, because mm. he just didn't like them. Uh, but having said that, there's a lot of stuff. Uh, the Maccabees, uh, second Maccabees, toward the tail end, it's about chapter 14-ish, uh, has prayers for the dead. And uh, Luther called that into question, and uh, the Catholics used that text to justify praying for the dead and purgatory and so on. And uh, I don't go along with that, but that's not uh, where I'm coming from. But there's a lot of literature that informed the early churches, and they give us a broader 
scope of uh, the, the writings, Christian writings and, uh, and Jewish writings that didn't get into our Bibles, they give us a bigger picture of what early Christianity was really like. They didn't, uh, I jokingly, uh, I said to a Methodist church last night, I, uh, they had me teaching a Bible study there, and I, I, my background is Baptist. And I said, there's clear evidence that uh, everybody was a Baptist in the early churches because they were all fighting each other. Anyway, <laughs> there were differences. There were differences. Uh, uh, I'm sure you heard the old story. The earliest Baptist church goes back to Abraham when he said to Lot, you go your way and I'll go mine. Anyhow, uh, that's, uh, there's some truth. Is that how they got the first Baptist and the second Baptist? Yeah, back <laughs> yeah, must be somewhere there. Uh, but there are, there are, are differences in the literature I have never advocated changing the Bible for the Catholics or for the Orthodox. Uh, the Orthodox view those deuterocanonical books, apocryphal books, differently than the Catholics do. They never call them scripture. Uh, they call them uncanonical scripture and simply call them readables. Uh, there's a Greek word, anagignos kas kamena, that Athanasius came up with, 367 AD. And and uh, he said, these books are useful for piety. And I don't see anybody getting hurt too badly by reading them. So I've encouraged people to read them so they'd at least know what their Catholic and Orthodox uh, friends uh, are reading. So mm. I don't know if that answers your question. I'm, I've never advocated changing the Bible that I use. I have uh, many Bibles also, but... I have some Bibles with the Apocrypha in them, and uh, the one I take to my church is the one without uh, the Protestant uh, Bible. And uh, when I preach, that's I use those texts. Once in a while, I will use a text that's found in an Apocryphal book to illustrate a point, but I, I don't go out of my way to call it sacred scripture, but the Catholics, the Orthodox don't. So, well, we share quotes out of books that are written today when we're when we're preaching and teaching sure. and things like that. So, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of fear in, in a lot of people's minds, um, particularly probably <laughs> people that are in ministry positions and things like that uh, in opening up or exposing people to the Apocrypha or to other other books that would kind of fit that category of of extra biblical. Um, and, and I don't know exactly where that fear comes from. I mean, you cited a couple of examples where there are some things where, you know, like you, you made that reference to the Maccabees and the, the prayer for the, the, you know, prayers for the dead and things like that, where it's like, yeah, we, we don't, we don't affirm that, but there's a lot of still there's, there's a lot of value. And as you said, talking about the culture of, of the early church and things like that, that are helpful by reading these, these books. I mean, if we can read, like I can, I can, go to my bookshelf and I can pull off a book from an author that I like who I, you know, I, I might agree with half the things they say and disagree with the other half of the things they say. And I don't just by me reading that book. I mean, I, I do need to come to it with a certain level of maturity, I guess, to sort of eat the hay, spit out the sticks, as they say, and stuff like that, so that I'm 
you know, sure. I, I guess I guess I could, you know, I could read any book and, and get myself into some some bad understanding or whatever if I'm not, uh, you know, if I'm not mature enough or I'm not able to really compare it to the whole of Scripture and to say, is this compatible or is this not compatible? What do you think is sort of a, a healthy way to approach these books that we would consider to be extra biblical? There's a considerable amount of help in the apocryphal books that Protestants call apocryphal and that are between the Old and New Testament and uh, when we uh, insert them. Uh, uh, let me go to John chapter 10, verse 1 and following. The uh, Feast of Dedication is mentioned. You have no idea where that is and what that is. It was the cleansing of the temple that took place during the Hasmonean dynasty when they kicked the Greeks out of Palestine. And you find that mentioned in 1 Maccabees. 1 Maccabees gives us some wonderful history. And the notion of a son of man, that's the term that Jesus used of himself. That wasn't his humanity that he's emphasizing. That's a special relationship with God uh, to do the work of God, and you find that in some of that intertestamental period of literature emphasized. Uh, at Qumran, uh, well, for years, uh, there were some scholars said Jesus never claimed to be a Messiah, and uh, yet when John's mm -hmm. disciples came to him, and uh, they said, are you the Messiah? And he said, uh, the lame are walking, and the dead are rising, and he listed those things. That's uh, almost a quote from Isaiah 61, but the dead are rising are not found in uh, 4Q521. That's uh, the fourth cave at Qumran where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found in uh, a book 521. And it speaks about a Messiah who uh, the dead are raised. It is, uh, you say, gee, um, there's a messianic statement and uh, the lame walk, the blind see, and the dead are raised. And that's exactly what Jesus said. So that affirms that there were some texts uh, like uh, it's called 4QMMT. I won't give the whole Hebrew of it at this point, but it's I got you. The, the works of the law. Paul was accused of not understanding because he criticized those who thought that they could earn their salvation by the works of the law. And uh, several scholars said, no, Paul didn't understand the law. He clearly didn't because there was nobody teaching the works of the law in the time of Paul. And then you go to 4Q MMT and it's, the whole thing is on the works of the law. And it demonstrates that there were Jews who believed they were saved by the works of the law. So there's good things that come out of this literature that isn't in our Bible that helps affirm some of the stuff that we uh, we already agree with, uh, but it's in our New Testament, and we wouldn't know that. Uh, you get the larger social setting, historical setting, for the context of early Christianity, what took place before the time of Jesus, at the end of the Old Testament time to before the time of Jesus, you get a lot bigger picture of what took place if you are familiar with some of that literature. When I went to seminary, we never did anything but the Bible. And now that very seminary has courses on the intertestamental literature. 
And uh, because they're saying, gee, there is something in there that's worthwhile reading, and it gives us a bigger picture. I don't think I need to call it scripture to be able to read it and understand it and see some places where there's several things that um, help us understand the context of early Christianity better. Even the apocryphal things say, gee, I didn't know that people like that were in existence. And uh, the Docetics, the Marcionites, and the uh, uh, Gnostics, and so on. Uh, uh, those were people that were uh, coming from the Christian community, and they introduced things that weren't uh, uh, in our New Testament. And uh, eventually they were rejected, but we get an idea that the church didn't have everything put together just perfectly well, like they do in our denomination or whatever, uh, in the first or second century. It took several centuries working through that. Yeah, that's super helpful. I appreciate that. I know we're kind of running short on time here, so let me uh, let me let me let me start rounding the corner here. But but I am I am curious about something. Um, what do you think is the biggest or one of the biggest lies or misconceptions that people tend to have about the formation of the canon? You know, I'm thinking in my mind about, you know, I think a lot of people think that it was Constantine ultimately that presided over the formation of the canon and and determining what was to be set up there and things like that. But just curious, what what would you say to be something that's just like a, a, a big misconception that might be a common misconception that people have when it comes to the formation of the canon? Well, there's a number of those. One was that it was settled at uh, the Council of Nicaea. It wasn't. Nothing right. about the Bible was discussed. Uh, it was the identity of Jesus. And after the identity of Jesus uh, is affirmed by a majority of churches at the Council of Nicaea, their bishops, and then they go back to their locations, uh, then all of a sudden you start seeing uh, canon lists. The primary uh, uh, resources that we have are canon lists and the manuscripts themselves and the translations uh, that have survived antiquity as well as church father comments. And uh, the manuscripts uh, uh, vary all over the place after the Council of Nicaea, but you begin to start seeing lists. And I've said over and over again, you cannot come to a biblical canon until you have a good idea who, who Jesus is. And when wow. the majority of churches affirm the identity of Jesus, mm -hmm. then you can find the books that fit with that. And it was the belief in Jesus, those core teachings, the traditions, core traditions of the church circulating, that took place long before Constantine. Constantine did not determine the size of, or the shape of the Bible. Uh, that's that's a bunch of uh, nonsense. That uh, malarkey. Forward um, to a book, and they told me they would print my forward, and I contradicted what the author said. But they never told the author that I contradicted, and he called it the Constantine's Bible, uh, and that's a very popular notion. And I I was disappointed in the the author. I saw him subsequent to that, and. And he said, wow, Lee, I really didn't know that you had that until I saw the book come out. And I said, I didn't know you didn't see it because you would have changed a lot of things in the book. Uh, there's a number of those things that uh, the biggest misconception is that there was a biblical canon before the time of Jesus that comprised the Old Testament. 
There's no evidence for that whatsoever. Uh, I go into a lot of detail, 600 pages just in the Old Testament, on showing what texts that we have from biblical and non-biblical sources and, and uh, uh, traditions that are stated in antiquity that let us know nobody was talking about a fixed Old Testament in the time of Jesus or uh, until uh, the closest we come to it is at the end of the first century, Josephus said there's 22 books. Um, and uh, uh, But he didn't say what the 22 were. And then the, the rabbinic Jews said, no, it's 24 books. They use two different numbers, but probably for the same books. You say, well, how could that be? Right. All right. The, second. 20, the 22 has to do with the number of letters in the Hebrew alphabet. The 24, the number of letters in the Greek alphabet. The alphabet had become almost divine. In the New Testament, Jesus is called in Revelation uh, uh, one, it's God, and 22, it's Jesus, the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. That was a very significant statement to make. Uh, that's why they, they put their books 22 or 24, but in neither case, either in Josephus with 22 or the rabbinics at 24, they had to combine books to come up with the 22 or the 24. Uh, there's more books than that. Uh, like in our 39 books of the Old Testament, they have it in 22 books. So you combine the Samuels, the Kings, the Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, uh, Ruth goes with Judges, and that uh, you got to find a way to combine them so it comes out exactly that way. Ethiopians do that with 81 books. It's always 81 books, but it's never the same. So uh, those are the kinds of things that... Uh, that uh, take place and a lot of people don't grasp what the significance of that is and they want to do exactly 22 but uh, count the books of the old testament there's more than 22 there and and but it, it was a divine number and it goes to homer homer had two major writings the iliad and the odyssey did you know that each chapter in the iliad begins with a different letter of the greek alphabet mm all 24. And the same thing is true with uh, both the Iliad and the Odyssey. And that was where the, you have the start. And you do see that also in um, Psalm 119, uh, 172 verses, uh, 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet introduce every eight verses, each of those uh, texts. And it begins with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph, Beth, Gimel, Daleth, and so on. Uh, wow. So uh, those are the kinds of things that a lot of people don't understand. I wouldn't like to use people are lying because I don't think consciously they are. I think at times they're uninformed and they haven't done enough homework. Uh, my earliest professors who taught me about the Old Testament uh, canon and the New Testament canon, they were just uninformed. They never lied to me. I think they were godly mm. people and, and uh, as informed as they could. They could interpret the scripture better than they could talk about the context of scripture. But we know more now uh, uh, than what we did then. Uh, we've known more now about canon formation in the last 30 years than we knew before then. So there's a lot of stuff that's going on. And uh, I, I want to affirm as often as I can, people who disagree with me, uh, we, we 
have different perspectives. We bring a lot to the uh, uh, to the Bible when we uh, come to it, but uh, they generally do it with a good heart. Uh, those that don't have a good heart, who are always trying to find flaws and faults in the Bible and stuff, I, I don't have much respect for that. Yeah, but um, well, well, you kind of you said something early on in this conversation, and it really pointed to the fact that really, ultimately, the centerpiece of this entire discussion and really the centerpiece of our entire uh, everything that we believe and, and, and what we are, the reason why you and I are even together talking here, it's, it's because of Jesus and it's all about Jesus. And I stand for the authority of scripture. I, I love the Bible. I love the 66 books that we have, and I believe they're inspired by God. And I wouldn't want to change, take from, add to anything like that personally. But I do think that our approach to scripture should be for me to discover more about Jesus. In other words, that scripture should lead me to him. And I, and I love the fact that you started this whole thing. And, and I, I know we're, uh, we're, we're running short on time. This is the last thing that I'll say, but I just wanted to ask you if you would kind of reiterate what you said at the beginning. And it was that Jesus was the uh, first canon of the church. I thought sure. that was such a beautiful statement. And I just wonder if, as we wrap things up here, if you could kind of reiterate and uh, talk a little bit about that. I try to emphasize that in all of my writings, that it started with Jesus. And there are some scholars that say, no, the early church read the Old Testament, and they came to the conclusion that Jesus was the Messiah. And I said, no, they encountered the uh, Jesus and they came to verses that affirmed that, but they started with an encounter with Jesus. And we begin our faith with an encounter with Jesus. I didn't know one verse when I walked down an aisle and gave my life to Christ. I didn't know the books of the Bible. And when I first started going to church and the pastor said, turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of John. I didn't know where that was uh, or Genesis or anything else. But uh, it was the preaching of the gospel that tra brought transformation uh, to my life. And I, I strongly affirm that uh, there are folks that are into apologetics often uh, want to prove everything. And they want to, they almost, they never say they deny faith, but they don't show much of a role for it. And they want to uh, prove to the intellectuals of the day that uh, they've got the right truth. I said, well, then just tell the gospel. It, it works. Uh, do you think that you can do a greater job than God can and the power of the Spirit working through the, the, the Word of God? I, I affirm the scriptures. I never use the term inerrancy uh, or infallibility because they confuse the lay people and which manuscript has got the infallible word in it and how many mistakes can be in there before it's no longer infallible or inerrant. And uh, I use the term authority as you have. Uh, I affirm the authority of scripture and its message is true. And I believe that. I can't prove it to an unbeliever, but I'm glad to tell him. I, I had an unbeliever came to me in a coffee shop. He knew that I was a pastor at the time. And, and he said, can I join you? And then all of a sudden he said, uh, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. He said, do you believe I'm going to hell because I don't have Jesus as my savior? <laughs> and I said, wow. Uh, and I said, what are you doing to go to heaven? And, and he said, oh, that was a very good deception, Lee. You didn't answer my question. And so I told him, uh, when I was in my last semester of high school, I was invited to an evangelistic meeting 
and I heard the gospel three nights in a row, and I surrendered my life to Christ, and my life was transformed. I'm not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, but everything in my life turned upside down, and I tell that story. And if you want to hear it, I'd be happy to share it with you. And he was Jewish, and, um, and when he went to the hospital, he asked me to come and pray for him. And uh, every time we'd come into this, uh, the restaurant uh, that I was in was a McDonald's, and he owned it. And uh, uh, he became a good friend of mine. But I saw changes taking place in his life. I'd like to say he eventually came to faith in Christ, but he had a greater appreciation for Christians that didn't condemn him. I don't send anybody to hell. That's God's job. And I've seen too many people want to send everybody to hell and get right, you fool, and they're uh, obnoxious. But I don't don't do that. But I want to show the love of Christ and share the gospel of Christ to as many as I possibly can. Love it. Well, Lee, I really, really appreciate you. Again, I appreciate your time, your perspective, and uh, for sharing your knowledge with us. So thank you so much for joining me. You bet. Thank you. Glad to be with you. Take care. Thank you, everybody, for taking the time to check out this conversation. Hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Be blessed, and I'll uh, see you next time.